Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly sermon podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Uh, I'm going to pray this morning and then we'll get started. So Father, I just invite you into this space. I just take a second and breathe in your presence. And we do declare that this is a place where you will be praised. And so, Lord, I ask that you would be magnified in this service. Father, I give you what I have prepared, and I ask you to breathe life on it and to speak in this place. I give you all the glory and all the honor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, So I am a sucker for spirit wear. I just think whenever my kid joins a new team or a new school that it is just an appropriate time to get a new hoodie. Uh, Something just feels right about wearing new sweatshirts when your kid starts a new program or goes to a new school. And so this year, my son graduated elementary school and he started middle school, but we received information on how to order spirit wear for middle school last year while he was still in elementary school. And so, of course, we had to buy Felix Festa sweatshirts for the whole family before Jack ever officially started in middle school. And so for months now, my husband and I have been wearing middle school spirit wear as we've gone out about town. Um, And sometime last year when Jack was still in the fifth grade, another parent commented to us about how we were kind of jumping the gun a little bit on wearing our spirit wear. Uh, And they had a point because outwardly we were wearing the identity of middle school parents, even though our son was not quite officially a middle schooler. But the truth is, though, is that my son's identity as a middle school student has already been established for some time. You see, when I had a baby uh, 11 years ago, I knew that eventually a time would come where he would graduate elementary school and he would move on up to middle school. Gabe and I were wearing outwardly an identity that had already been established internally. Now, identity is defined as this. It's the fact of being who a person is, the definition of who you are. Friends, you have an identity that has already been established. And this identity is what determines what is expressed outwardly. You have an identity of faith established in Christ, one that is not determined by your outward actions, but one that is determined by the work of Jesus. The problem is, however, is that we sometimes get this backwards. We often think that what we express outwardly is who we are. It's what defines us, that our actions, our behavior, that's going to make us be something, that we think we have to be something, be a certain way, act a certain way. This is what's going to make us who we're supposed to be. But who were we meant to be? We were meant to be a people who live a life of faith. But what does it mean to live a life of faith? What does this look like? Now, for the last few weeks, we've been looking together at the gospel according to Abraham or faith through the life of Abraham. Um, And we've come to understand that Abraham is an ordinary man with ordinary faith anchored in the extraordinary promises of God. And we've been presented with the schematic of faith, an illustration of faith that says this. It says, God says, I'm going to send you out, and Abraham says, where? God says, I'll tell you later. Right now, just go. 
Then he says, I will give you a land. And Abraham says, where? And God says, I'll tell you later, just wander. Then God says, I'll give you a child. And Abraham says, how? And God says, I'll tell you later, just wait. God says, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you. And Abraham says, how? Take your son and sacrifice him. And God says, I'll show you later. This morning, I want to continue looking at Abraham's life because I believe his faith story is one that illustrates for us the life that God intends for us to live, a life secured in faith in Christ. Now, to catch us up a little bit in the context of where we are in the Bible, and maybe if you're joining us for the first time in this series, I want to just take a moment and introduce you to Abraham and the book of Genesis. Now, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and it starts with the creation of the world, God's intention to have direct connection and relationship with humanity, and not just superficial relationship, but intimate closeness with the Creator. So we meet Adam and Eve, uh, and through their actions, sin enters the story. A lot of us know this story that God tells Adam and Eve not to do something. They think that they know better. And so sin enters the world, not because God is punishing them, but because intimacy has been broken. And then after Adam and Eve, we meet their children, Cain and Abel, and we witness the first murder. And we see the separation between God and his intended relationship with humanity continue to grow. And then we move on to Noah, and we read about the wickedness of the world and the great flood. And then we meet Abraham, Abram, as he's first known to us in the scripture. And when we meet Abram, there's nothing special noted about him. He doesn't have superpowers. Um, It doesn't say that he was incredibly handsome. There's nothing noted of his physical appearance. It's simply the call of Abram. And we learn right away that God wants to bless him, that God has a plan for him, and he wants to demonstrate his intended intimacy with humanity through the life of Abraham. Abraham is promised that he will be the father of many nations, that his descendants will be far too numerous for anyone to count, but his journey to fatherhood is anything but simple, and it takes 100 years for the promise of an heir to come about in the way that God has intended. And so this morning we're going to pick up in Genesis 22. I will read for you this morning. It's a long passage. So this is Genesis 22. It says, Sometime later God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. 
Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called out to Abraham a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through their offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. God is asking a man who has waited 100 years for the fulfillment of a promise to take that promise and sacrifice it on the mountain. And we see here that Abraham goes. There's no questioning, he goes. But Abraham goes because he began his faith journey with God from a place of promise. So when he hears God speak to him, he goes. Abraham's first encounter with God took place in Genesis 12, and it says this, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will curse those who curse you, and I will bless those who bless you, and all people on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Now, up until this point in Abraham's life, in Genesis 12, he'd been living with his family, as this was customary at the time, but he hears God's voice, and he hears the promises that are spoken over him, and he decides that he's going to leave his place of familiarity and live in the unfamiliar. Now, land in this time meant security, it meant survival, and it meant identity. It served as an heritage and an inheritance to one's ancestors and inheritors. But Genesis 12 tells us that Abraham went. He left all that behind. He took what he had and he went. And he went because the promises that God had spoken to him were more real to him than the actuality of his circumstance. Living a life of faith allows us to do just that. So what does it mean to live a life of faith? Living a life of faith means that the promises of God are more real to you than the actuality of your circumstances. So when Abraham hears God tell him to go and take his son, he can go because he's living in the reality of the promises and not the actuality of the circumstance. Now, I am best friends with Queen Elizabeth. That's a joke. But ever since I watched The Crown, I totally feel like we're best friends. The family's history and their current events have been so intriguing to me, and one of the most interesting things to me is just how Queen Elizabeth became Queen Elizabeth. Because when she was born, even though she was third in line to the throne, it was never intended that she would actually rule. Her uncle was supposed to be the king. No one expected that he would abdicate the throne, making her father the king and making her the heir to the throne. While she'd always been a part of the royal family, it was not until the promise of becoming a queen that she began living as one. 
She took on royal training and duties and travel as this was the plan for her future because the reality of the promise was more real than the actualities of being a 10-year-old little girl. Similarly, Abraham begins his faith journey with God by hearing him say, just go. And now he hears him say, just go again. And he can do so because living a life of faith means that the promises of God are more real to you than the actuality of your circumstances. Genesis 22, I'm going to go back to our passage. It says this, Sometime later, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac, When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Now it strikes me that the word of God specifically mentions the third day. And we know that this is significant because a lot of significant events tend to take place on the third day. But what's even more significant to me as I read this passage is just as a parent, that Abraham for three days is journeying and carrying with him his son and the words that God has told him to go and to sacrifice his only son, who he loves. For three days, Abraham wanders towards Moriah, not knowing what's going to take place when he gets there. But Abraham is living a life of faith. Abraham has wandered with God before, so he knows he can wander with him again. Living a life of faith allows you the space to wander in uncertainty. Abraham journeyed for three days knowing what God had asked of him. He loaded his vehicle, he took his donkey, he brought what he needed, and he headed out towards the destination that God was asking without knowing what was going to happen when he got there. Now, as I studied this passage, one commenter noted that it's very clear Abraham did not tell Sarah what was going on because she totally would have stopped him. But Abraham believes God, and because he believes God, he has the space to wander in uncertainty. Now, Abraham has a relationship with God where God tends to make a promise, and then Abraham tends to ask a question of how this promise is going to happen. And so in Genesis 15, we find another encounter that Abraham has with God, and he's approaching God like, I don't have an heir. How is this going to happen? Genesis 15, 5 and 6 says this, He, God, took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now the text does not say that Abraham negotiated with God or that Abraham worked harder and it was credited to him as righteousness. It doesn't say Abraham read more and studied more and uh, fasted more because he wanted to get what he wanted from God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It doesn't say that Abraham pretended like it wasn't hurting, that it wasn't happening as quick as he thought and it was credited to him as righteousness. The text simply says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham's belief in God is what allowed him to wander as the uncertainty of how promises would actually be fulfilled surrounded him. And now, as I mentioned, Abraham tends to ask God, well, how is this going to happen? And what I love about this passage is that there's no mention that 
that there's depletion of righteousness from Abram as he's asking questions. It's not like Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Then Abraham asked questions of how it was going to happen and his righteousness went from 100% to 85%. The text tells us point blank that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, period. Now, Paul, uh, an apostle of Christ, actually uses Abraham as an example when he writes a letter to a church in Galatia. Paul had discipled some believers at this church, uh, and now he's kind of caught wind that they're starting to believe other messages from other people, and they're starting to believe that it takes more than belief, it takes more uh, than just their faith, that they actually need to have some kind of outward marking to have right standing with God, that they need to be circumcised. And so Paul uses Abraham as an example in the New Testament to explain to them how their belief is credited to them as righteousness. And so Galatians 3, 5 through 7 says this. This is Paul writing to this church. So again, I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Paul is reminding his audience of Abraham because Abraham was a man who was praised and honored by the Jewish people. Abraham's life was an example to the Jewish people. By using Abraham as an example, he's making it plain. This is what happened with Abraham, and this is what can happen with you. You can believe God. Your identity is established internally, and this is clear in the life of Abraham. That even Abraham, who wandered without land, without an heir, believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Because living a life of faith allows you the space to wander in uncertainty. Genesis 22, 5 and 6. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went, the both of them, together. Now I've tried to imagine what this must have been like for Abraham, going, wandering, waiting, and now he's headed to the place that God wants him to go with his son, ready to do what God ask, is asking of him to do. And I see Abraham determined in the midst of uncertainty to worship his God. Now, worship is an act of adoration. It's an act of intimacy. And Abraham tells his servants that he and the boy will go and worship, and then they will return. He seems to know that getting close to his God is the safest place to be, and he seems certain that worshiping in the waiting is the place that he needs to go. Abraham wants to be close to God, and God wants to be close to Abraham. He wants to have relationship with him. Now, throughout Abraham's life, as I mentioned, he's been told this promise that he will have descendants far greater than he could ever count. Ever count. But it's become apparent in his life that his wife, Sarah, is barren, and she cannot have children. And so we read at one point in his life that Sarah actually tells Abram to go and produce an heir with a maidservant. And now we today read that story and go, huh? But we have to understand, we understand this story through the Mosaic Law. At this point in history, the Mosaic Law had not actually been given. So 
technically, and as far as Abraham knew, he was not actually breaking any laws by producing an heir with a maidservant. But God is establishing a new covenant by telling him that the heir will come from Sarah. He's using his relationship with an earthly man to demonstrate and illustrate the oneness that the God of the universe wants to have with mankind. He tells Abraham that his wife, who is barren and well beyond her childbearing years, will in fact get pregnant. That life will come from the covenant of marriage, the unification of two people bound together through contractual relationship. God is showing the closeness and the unity that he wants to have with his people. Now, God uh, has reminded Abraham of this promise throughout his life, and one of the instances where he reminds him of this promise is found in Genesis 18. Uh, And right after the promise is said again, we hear the Lord say this, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised in him. In this text, we hear the Lord say that he doesn't want to hide or keep anything from Abraham. He's reinforcing the promise, but he's also saying, shall I hide from him what I'm about to do? He's communicating that he wants to be Abraham's friend. He doesn't want to hide or keep anything from him. Now, the the word used for I have chosen him is actually a Hebrew word that means a choosing, a knowing fully, an intimacy, sharing love, taking someone into your own heart. God has chosen Abraham. He has known him. He has singled him out. He wants to talk to him. He wants to commune with him, and he's calling him to closeness. He has communion with Abraham, and God wants to have communion with us. Living a life of faith means being friends with God and having communion with him. Abraham has been told to take his son, to sacrifice him, and he goes and he wanders, and now he's headed to the top of a mountain to worship his God, to commune with him, to share with him his intimate thoughts, his inmost feelings, what's going on, his emotions. He worships as he waits on the Lord. Now, dictionary.com defines communion as an interchange or sharing of thoughts or emotions, intimate communication. God wants to have communion with his creation. Now, the importance of friendship and intimacy through face-to-face connection is recognized in studies on emotional, physical, and mental health. And a 2016 article in Psychology Today says this, a key finding from a major study of adults' lives was that those who had close, long-term friends fared better than those who were less social. Close friendships enhanced moods and functioning, as well as emotional and physical health. It then goes on to talk about how bad social media is, but then it says this. (laughs) Social media can never replace the authenticity and intimacy of face-to-face interactions. This is the kind of connection that the God of the universe wants to have with his people. He desires face-to-face connection, communion, and closeness. Living a life of faith means being friends with God and having communion with him. The promises and the covenant that God is establishing in Abraham is becoming more refined throughout Abraham's life. 
God has made it clear that he will be the father to many nations, that his offspring will be far too numerous for him to count, that his children and his children's children will be those who serve and honor God. There is a promised future here. Abraham is a friend of God. He communes with him. They talk. God listens. God honors what he says to him. And Abraham goes and he does what God asks of him. Now, truthfully, when you read Genesis 22, it can kind of make you scratch your head a little bit, seeing words like, and then God tested Abraham. But we have to understand that when we see testing in Scripture, it's not a pass-fail thing. It's actually God wanting to take us into deeper levels of intimacy and authority with him. Genesis 22, 6-9, we'll pick our story back up, and it says this, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife, So they went, both of them together, and Isaac said to his father, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham is unwavering. He still doesn't know how anything is going to work out, but he is convinced that it will work out. We heard in verse 5 that he tells his servants, the boy and I will go and worship, and then we will return to you. And now we see conversation with his son asking, where's the sacrifice going to come from? And Abraham is convinced that the Lord will provide. He's convinced that God will fulfill his promises. And Isaac can see this. Now, one important thing to note in this story, and maybe to put your minds at ease a little bit, is that often when we read the story, we think of Isaac as a little child. That's not the case. Isaac is probably around 20 years old, and as I mentioned, Abraham uh, is around 120 years old, and so Isaac could have certainly taken out old man Abraham. But there's no indication of this in the text. There's no indication that Isaac struggled or that he fought back. There's no indication that there was an uprising as Abraham lays his son on the altar and raises his knife to slaughter him. Isaac asks, where is the offering going to come from? And his father tells him, obviously with confidence, that the Lord will provide. And because Abraham trusts God, Isaac can trust his father that when his father says the Lord will provide, the Lord will provide. Abraham has not received a new promise or a new plan. He's still secure and he's willing to give up everything, including his only son who he loves because he knows that God loves him more. Living a life of faith means trusting God with everything, no matter what. Now, A.B. Simpson was a pastor who served in Kentucky, um, and he felt a call to relocate his wife and his children to the inner city of New York. And his wife, Maggie, was absolutely not a fan of this. That was her, her, not on her list of fun things to do. Um, but even in the midst of the unknown and in the midst of anger and animosity, this is what he wrote in his journal when he came to New York. Alternate feelings of compassion, tenderness, and dreadful pain and even fear about Maggie, who is so set in her seeming hatred to me that I can hardly speak to her and have shut myself up in my Savior, leaving her simply and fully with him 
and praying to be kept perfectly in his way and temper toward her in all things. On my arrival here, found a welcome prayer meeting arranged for tonight. It was delightful, and the blessed spirit gave such sweet testimony that this was his way. The room was full, and the spirit was delightful. I asked today for a verse for New York and received a blank. God made me willing to leave all to him and go with sealed orders. Now, I love this journal entry because here's a pastor who's willing, in the midst of his wife hating him and in the midst of knowing that he has to go to New York asking God for plans, and he feels like he's met with sealed orders. But he goes. And now A.B. Simpson went on to be the founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, of which our church is actually a part of. And he went on to establish Nyack College, which started out in New York City as a missionary training school. Living a life of faith means trusting God with everything, no matter what. Everything about Abraham's life is a strategic illustration of God's plan to establish a faith identity in each one of us. God chooses Abraham to show us the intimacy that he wants to have with his creation, with humanity. When sin entered the world through Adam and Eve's sin, God began to put into place a plan that would bring us all back to the closeness and the connection that he desires to have with us. Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son, his only son who he loves, and he's willing to do so because he's living a life of faith. And we can see the fulfillment of this promise in the perfect life and death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross. This is the fulfillment of that plan. Abraham is a picture of what the Father has done on our behalf. He sent his son who willingly gave of his life so that we could live. Abraham had intimacy with God and God wants to have intimacy with us. God is asking the same of us. He's asking us to live a life of faith in him, not for faith's sake, but because when we put our faith in Jesus, we begin to realize that this is what our identity is. We can live in the promises of God as though they were, even in the not yet. We can wander with him when we have uncertainty. We can worship and we can commune with him and we can trust him with our everything. This is who we were designed and destined to be. I heard a quote once from a very theological, deep movie, Avengers Endgame. <laughs> and it says this, Everyone fails at who they're supposed to be. The measure of a person, of a hero, is how well they succeed at being who they are. Friends, you are someone who has an identity that is safe and secure in the established work of Jesus Christ, and he's asking you today to put your faith in him. This is who you were intended to be. I'm going to go back to that passage in Galatians that Paul, the letter that Paul wrote in, in Galatians, it says this, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now as I prepared for this message this week, uh, I was struck that I was following up baptism. And last week hearing everyone share their testimonies and their stories of how they've put their faith in Jesus and how they want the whole world to know it. And I feel like that's what the Lord is asking of us today. 
I've tried to describe to you today what it, what it looks like to live a life of faith, but I believe that the question God is asking is, how do I do this? And the Bible is clear. It's clear that we all have sinned, that we are all separated from God, that when sin entered the world, there was a separation that took place, all of us. And the Bible also tells us that the wages of sin, what is earned from sin, is death. And so we need someone who's going to take those wages on our behalf. Jesus died on the cross once for all so that we could put our faith and our trust in him. It's not about doing or, or acting like we're supposed to or pretending this is how we're supposed to. It's a life of faith, knowing that the finished work of Jesus is enough. I'm going to ask you to stand with me today as we close. But I believe that this is the call for all of us today. God is calling and he's asking us to live a life of faith to know that you can trust him in everything, with everything, to know that he is calling you close to him, that he wants to hear your intimate inmost thoughts. He wants communion with you. He wants you to know that he's safe enough for you to wander, that when you're unsure how things are going and you just feel like you're wandering, you are safe with him. And he wants you to know that his promises can be more real to you than whatever you might be facing today. Now, scripture tells us that the only thing that we have to do is believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is the Lord and we will be saved. It's a simple act of faith to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. And so today, I'm just going to pray a prayer. And if you feel comfortable praying after me, you can. If you don't, there's no pressure in this place. But I believe that God is asking each one of us today to take a step of faith and say that we will put our everything in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that this is where our true identity stands. So would you pray with me this morning? Father, I come to you. I know that I need you. I confess that I can't live without you. And so today, I put my trust in you. I confess that you are Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to live a life of faith in you. Friends, that's as simple as it is. It's to believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross, that he rose again, and that he lives forever so that you could find life in him. Father, I thank you for this plan to bring your creation back to its intention. I thank you that you use ordinary men like Abraham to show us the destiny that each one of us have to live life in you. And so today we say that we want to be people of faith that we want to be people who live in the promises that are not yet as though they were, that we want to be people who wander with you, that when we feel so uncertain that we know we are safe to wander with you, who know that we can worship you while we wait for the fulfillment of whatever you're doing. And Lord, to give you everything, to trust you in everything with everything. Father, I give you all the glory and all the honor in this place. We say that this place will be a place marked by faith. 
In Jesus' name we pray.